Uh, I trust you have your Bibles with you or your phone or some type of app that, uh, some type of electronic device. That's fine also that you can read along, follow along as we read God's Word this morning. Uh, you also have the Pew Bible in front of you if you would like, and I think it'll also be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along there. I always think it's so, so important that you see uh, where our text comes from and see where some of my thoughts are coming from and and uh, as we study through God's Word again this morning. So it'll be from John chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 47 through 57. And so we'll be finishing the 11th chapter and starting the 12th next week. And uh, we'll be transitioning, t- turning a corner uh, as we go into chapter 11, or chapter 12 next week, I should say, as we get into the final week of the life of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, if you'd follow along, John chapter 11, verses 47 through 57, and God's inspired word reads, uh, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a consul and were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that a whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he uh, might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And so they were seeking for Jesus. And they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He will not come up to the feast at all? And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now, Lord, as we uh, spend a few moments and add our own thoughts to it, Father, would your spirit illuminate this text, open our hearts and our minds for what you would have for us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A miracle just won't do. Many claim if only they could see a miracle, they would believe. Some say that they have never seen a miracle, and so therefore they will no longer believe. This is the case with with the son of a well-known pastor. He's now a humanist. And when he was asked in an interview what it would take for him to return to Christianity... He said, an honest-to-goodness biblical miracle. He said, if I could see a person with no arm, and someone prays over that person, and just like that, his arm grows back, that would do it. He would believe and return to the faith. Well, besides being an arrogant response, it's highly unlikely he'd return to the faith, even if... He's seen the miracle he is asking to see. All throughout the biblical text, 
We have example after example of people seeing just such a miracle and they still do not believe. The story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave is just such an example. These self-righteous religious people literally seen Lazarus' dead body. Literally seen his dead body placed into the grave and then seen Jesus raise him again from the dead four days later and still many of them did not believe. In fact, not only did they not believe, but they were going to kill Jesus for it. Remember the story of another Lazarus? Lazarus and the rich man, we call it. They both died. The rich man went to hell. Lazarus went to heaven. And from there, the rich man said, told God, told Jesus, told Abraham, we know that's God in that context, said, could you send Lazarus back and warn my brothers, my paraphrase, that hell is for real and warn them about this place. And Jesus responded to the rich man in Luke chapter 16, verse 31. And he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, Moses and the prophets, we know that's the Old Testament. Even if someone rises from the dead, they will not be persuaded. And today we see the truth of that statement, do we not, in our text today. They literally seen a man raised from the dead, and yet they did not believe. Why would anyone today think they would be different? When someone says things such as that, we are hearing is not a sincere comment or a sincere desire. What we are often hearing is an arrogant person trying to control God, trying to tell God what they demand to see for Him, to believe in Him, rather than take Him at His word. And so today, a miracle just won't do is really all about arrogance. And then so in these final verses of chapter 11, we're going to see the blindness of arrogance, prophetic arrogance, the antithesis of arrogance, the consequence of arrogance, and then finally, the curious arrogance. Curious arrogance. We're going to start with the blindness of arrogance. We see it in verses 47 and 48. Well, they have seen tremendous growth in the Jesus movement. If we want to say it in such in, in those terms, because I think that's how we're to understand it. I mean, they themselves said, what are we doing? For If this man keeps going like this, everybody's going to turn to him. And so they've seen tremendous growth in the Jesus movement. But as with most things, as with most, most growth, it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost to them. And in their case, they said it's going to cost us our place and it's going to cost us our nation. And so first, what is meant by place and what is meant by nation? Place was literally their temple, their house of worship. It was going to cost them Holly Grove, if we, if we will. It's going to cost them their place of worship. It's going to cost them tradition. It's going to cost them the way things have always been done. And it's going to mess things up that they're comfortable with. Their nation, 
It's just their way of life. We would call it Christianity. For them, it would be Judaism. For them, it was the Roman government had, had given them a, a certain amount of control. They were in, they were, they were semi-autonomous group of people who they ruled along with the Roman government, though not necessarily. They ruled as far as the Roman government allowed them to rule and they appeased them and they would appease the Roman government. And so if, if they allow Jesus to continue as Jesus is going, it's going to mess up the comfort. It's going to mess up the good thing that they got, going, they, they got going on. So as long as they play by the rules, as long as they keep things nice and calm and nobody's feathers are ruffled, then they'll be able to continue to go to the temple, continue to worship, continue to, to have their religious community as it has always been. You know, not much has changed from the Old Testament for them. You see it over and over and over again through the Old Testament as the people would wander around the lands and they would come into a community and God would warn, say, hey, don't follow after the people of the land and syncretism would come in and next thing to know, they're having compromises and compromises often were done in the way of marriages and along with these marriages, especially men seem to have this problem with women and, and they would like the women of the land and the, with the women of the land also would come different gods and different religions and so you can see how how that would go and so you, these compromises would come into the play come into place for for the people of the land the next thing you know god would somehow have to have a correction among the people to get them back in line if you will well, I don't know that much has changed for us in 2020 either, has it? I don't know that much has changed for us as we think about Christianity and as we think about how do we get along in a society where we have our comforts, where we have our, our peace. We're not worried about gathering together in a place such as this this morning. We're quite comfortable here. we got the windows are wide open. We don't have to worry about people looking in. But there are some places this morning where Christians are not worshiping such as we are. They're not worshiping in a place of, of peace. They're not worshiping in a place that, that's wide open. And they don't have to deal and fuss about masks. No, they would just as soon have that. But they're worried about their own safety. They're worried about their own very, very life. Their very life. And so I think as, as Christians, um, we need to be very, very careful, very careful there how we can be blind, blinded also Oh, by by arrogance, but we must move along quickly. And I would ask, I'll just stop for just one moment as I catch my breath, <laughs> um, that I hope you do study through this text. There's so much in these um, for you yourself to extrapolate from them. Um, so I'm certainly not going to be exhaustive this morning, but I, I do want to point out, and I want you to, to highlight uh, that, that, that arrogance is often very blinded, or because of our blindness, we become arrogant. We want to be careful as Christian people. The second thing is, is the prophetic arrogance. Um, I, I find this, this quite fascinating where, where Caiaphas, uh, you know, he was the, the, the ruler of the land. He was the, the, the high priest. He was the high priest for quite a few years, actually, which that's a whole other topic. But he was a high priest for, for quite a few years. And he came out and said, well, what are we, or, or you don't know nothing at all. In verse 49, you know nothing at all. You don't even know what you're talking about, Right? I mean, that's what he tells people. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Why? Because they do not take into account that it is expedient that one man should die rather than a whole nation, rather than a, than a whole, whole 
people. Let me just read this for you once again. He said, then Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, that year, uh, just add a footnote right there because um, um, it's often thought that, that high priests were only for one year and that's how it should have been, but that's not what actually happened. Caiaphas was high priest for quite a few years and then his 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 father-in-law was high priest before him for quite a few years. But that year is going to be kind of like for us. When we talk about that year, what are we going to think about? Year 2020. I'm hoping 2021 will be better. <laughs> but we're going to think that. And that's the same thing here. So when they're saying that year is that year and that Jesus, that they lost Jesus, that Jesus was was executed. And so that's what they're, they're saying there. But so Caiaphas says um, here that, you know, you know nothing at all. You don't you don't even know what you're talking about because this is the deal, right? Okay, if we want to keep business as usual, then, then then you don't even take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and not just for the people, but for, for the whole nation. So it's better that one should die instead of us all losing our way of life, if you will. And so I want to pause for just a moment here, and I want to hone in a little bit on this this word expedient. Um, because maybe, maybe in your translation, whatever it may be, it, it may say something like that. It is better. It is better that one man should die than, than you. And that, that, that's true, uh, but we lose the sense uh, of the original language there of what it's trying to say. So it might, might be better for us to think about it. it would be, it's, it's, it's advantageous for us. And it gives us a sense that it's instead of, in replace of. And so it is better for one person to die or whatever, in this case, one person to die, and then for all of us to suffer. And so this coming at a cost to someone, right, so that we, or that whoever is in place of, has a place of of comfort, if you will, or a place of stability and normality, if you will. That's how we're supposed to understand what it is saying. So Caiaphas is saying it is better that one man suffer so that we don't but it is costing that one person something. And I, I want to give you just a, a couple examples this morning to help solidify this. Um, and that is from Genesis. It was when Abram was still Abram and Sarai was still Sarai. And they went to the Egyptians. They went out to another country. And as they went into that country, Abram was concerned for his life. So he told Sarai, tell the people of the land that you are my sister. That way they won't kill me to take my wife. Because wife, you are so beautiful. Now husbands, tell your wife she's beautiful, but don't do it in this way. Don't do it like this. So Abram says, because you're so beautiful, it could cost me. Therefore, it's expedient, it's more advantageous for me that they take you to be their wife and allow me to live. Well, that's in Genesis chapter 12, so you can read the whole story there, but God protected his people, and that didn't happen. And ironically, it's as though Abraham or Abram didn't even learn, because eight chapters later in Genesis chapter 20, he does the same thing. Now he's called Abraham. God has changed his name to Abraham. God has changed her name to Sarah. He does the same thing again. Right? They come to another place, and there is Abimelech, and they said, Oh, Sarah, tell Abimelech, tell the people that you are my sister. That way it's better, because that way they'll, they'll protect me. Right? You get the point. You, we're, we're headed. This is, this is the analogy that we're using, right? This is, this is what we need to understand is happening here in our text today. And so again, God saved the people. 
God's plan was not, was not messed up, right? And now, the interesting thing is, uh, like father, like son. Um, maybe some of you fathers uh, like that. Maybe some of you fathers don't. And I suppose on the situation, it depends if you like it or if you don't like it. But like father, like son. Here we've got Isaac. Isaac did the same thing. He learned well from his father, I guess. Because when they ended up with the Philistines, the enemies of the land, he told Rebecca. He said, tell them you're my sister. Because it is expedient, it is more advantageous for me that they would take you to be their wife for Pharaoh to take you or whoever to take you to be your wife rather than they kill me to take you because you're my wife, right? This is the sense that we need to understand what Caiaphas is saying here. Caiaphas thinks that he's saving a people, that he's saving a people by killing Jesus, and yet by the very death of Jesus, the people are being saved. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And yet, 35 years later, in 35 years later, um, Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. I mean, here by trying to protect themselves and save themselves, oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. And so as we think about the prophetic arrogance here, we should understand what is being said here, what he's saying without realizing it. And we're going to get there. But what he realized without saying it is that um, it is better. It is better that one person should die and save the whole lot of them, save the rest of them. And so that brings us to verses 51 to verses 52, the next two verses. And here we see the antithesis of arrogance, which is just the opposite of, of, of arrogance. And, um, um, and, and again, as it starts out here in verse 51, now he did not, Caiaphas did not say this of his own initiative, and so I want to pause uh, here again because I think this is an important point to make. And that God did not dictate as we think about what Caiaphas has just said. And as we think about our own scriptures today and, the, and, and sometimes the discussions that happen in them, we see an excellent example of how it works. So here he says, no, he did not say this on his own initiative. God did not dictate what the authors of the text wrote. And yet at the same time, what the authors wrote were inspired. Right? And so Caiaphas did not know what he's going to say or did he, what he was saying was actually prophetic. And though the words that he said were his own actual words. And this is kind of the mystery that can come into when we think about the inspiration of scripture. Um, because yes, these authors wrote. They wrote on their own accord. They wrote what was in their own minds, and they wrote that. They had no idea they're writing an inspired word. They had no idea we're going to be reading this 2,000 years later. Yet this is the plan. This is how God protects and preserves His own, as we've seen through, through Abraham, as we've seen through Isaac, as you see through all throughout the biblical text. God will, will protect his own. So, so I want you to, want you to think about that because often people will, 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 that's an argument that people have on the inspiration authority of scripture. I said, well, no, no, these are just authors and, and that's ridiculous that God dictated to them. Well, yeah, that, that is true. If you're going to think that God was speaking this year as they're, they're writing. 
<clears throat> and yet, um, it's very important for us, especially, especially as the world seems to be more and more uh, turmoil, where's our benchmark? Where's our anchor? Where's our stability? Has to be in the text. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. You, you know the text well. 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. They didn't realize what they were doing. And yet in the providence of God, oh, here we have the text preserved for us today. In Jude 3, I might also remind you of that because there's some who would like to say they have a new word for us. That's false. It is not. Jude 3, the text, the canon is complete. Contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all handed down to the saints. No more new text is being added. What we have is exactly what God wanted us to have, and it is enough. It is sufficient. Well, let's come back. Caiaphas here, a self-seeking evil man, should have such a prophetic word, should not surprise us. It should not surprise us that God can speak through someone like a Caiaphas. Again, I remind you in Numbers um, where God spoke through Balaam, right? God spoke through Balaam. And probably one of your favorite stories, uh, maybe as youngsters, maybe still a favorite story of yours, it is mine I always found great humor in, is how God spoke through the donkey, right? And, and I love that. And so if God can speak through a donkey, certainly God can speak through me too, right? Um, I think about that often, actually. Uh, but God speaks through people, however he chooses and however he wills. And so we shouldn't be surprised at times, uh, uh, you know, where you got a guy like Caiaphas that God spoke through Caiaphas. And we shouldn't be surprised when God still speaks through Balaam's today and donkeys today. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, he didn't let his brothers off the hook. He says, no, no, you guys meant evil. You, you guys really wanted to kill me. You guys really literally wanted to sell me out. But God meant it for good. God meant it for good. So we need to be careful of those we listen to, of those we follow but also realize that God can speak through anybody in any way He so chooses. But I must, must caution, it must align, must align with Scripture. And so what did Caiaphas unwittingly say? What did he unknowingly say that particular year? The year of our Lord, the year that Jesus was crucified? He said either Jesus dies or the nation dies. Jesus dies or the nation dies. It's substitutionary atonement. We see it quite clearly. Someone else is being replaced for somebody else or something else. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as he pointed to Jesus. And so we, we, we certainly see that, but, but I want to break it down just a little bit more, a little bit further. It says now, and that he did not save his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, 
And not for the nation only, but also that the people gathered together in the one, the children of God who are scattered abroad, who's being spoken of here was, it's the Jewish people of the diaspora, those who were scattered and those who were spread out. It was speaking to those who are scattered, and it was also speaking to the children of God, those who are yet to come to Christ. Those who are yet to come to Christ. Where, John, where Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 16, I have other sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. No longer a nation, but a one people. No longer a nation, no longer just a group of people, but all collectively as the people of God, as Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Right at the beginning of that prophetic chapter, we see how John starts it off with this assurance in John chapter, or Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Behold a great multitude. He's giving us the end at the beginning. Behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation in all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. That, that, it, it, so it's not just one group of people but it's all the children of God. It's no longer a nation, but it is the church. It's no longer a nation, but it is, is the congregation. The ecclesia is, is better translated, not as church, but congregation. That's exactly what it is. So it's the congregation of people. One more point that must be made under the heading here, and that is this phrase, that the children of God that we're on. The children of God. And I don't um, well, who are the children of God? Who are those who make up this congregation? Who are the children of God? Or in 51, let me say it, ask it more point blankly. But Jesus is going to die for the children of God. Who is that? For whom did Jesus die? Well, we'll just take a little quick walk through the Bible here in Isaiah 53, you can write these references down if you like. Isaiah 53, verse 8, for the transgressions of my people is where the suffering servant came in. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John chapter 10, verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Ephesians 5.25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In these passages, we can clearly see a simple answer to our question, for whom did Jesus die? See, the death of Jesus was not an atonement for all sins in general, but it was for His people, for the sins of His people, for the sins of the children of God, His children from all tribes and from all nations. Jesus would have been just. He would have been just to die for no one. He would have been just to die just for the Jewish people. He would have been just to die just for some from his generation. 
He would have been just to die for no one from our generation. But Jesus is beyond just. And Jesus chose to die for the elect from all tribes and from peoples and from nations. Jesus is way more than just. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't just die for the nation, as we see in this this verse right here? But he also died for the children, those who are scattered abroad, for the Gentiles, and for you, and for I. Well, have you answered that call? Have you heard the voice of the good shepherd? I mean, he loves you. He gave up his life for you. Don't resist him. Don't resist him. It's the consequence of arrogance. We see it in verse 53 to to 54, the consequence of of arrogance. So from that day on, they planned together to to kill him, to kill Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness, to Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Evidently, Caiaphas's plan worked. The Supreme Court had ruled, and Caiaphas's plan worked because they convened, they got together. It was the Sanhedrin. It was made up from scribes. It was made up from Pharisees. It was made up from the Sadducees to the court of the day. And evidently, it worked because they had decided right here in verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. To kill Jesus. Why? Well, verse 54, we have, uh, therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk among them. Why? Because they planned to kill him, right? They planned to kill him. I, I think for us here, we can also see a warning for, for you and I. I. I was hung up on that a little bit this week, this, this little sense, which I, I, I can do that. That's a problem I can have. But therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among them. That's sad, isn't it? It's like, I mean, here, it's just, so what, what, what do we do with that? And this is why I tell you, don't resist, don't resist God. It's a warning for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 warns, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. This is done with sin. This is done with not following our conscience. And pretty soon, it can become weaker and weaker and weaker. The Spirit's pull on our life. You see, here, here were these self-righteous religious people. They were doing exactly that. They recognized Jesus. How could they not? And yet Jesus was messing with their life. And so they explained Him away. And Jesus no longer could walk with them. It's a warning we must heed. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, though, there is light. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by our actions. By whom you were sealed. By whom you were sealed for the day of, of redemption. And see, and see here, here, here again, in, in the midst of a warning, we need to shed some, some hope, right? Because if, if you're like me, and, and, I, and I think you are, at times 
you wish you could have a do-over. That's why I like Groundhog Day. (laughs) But I I think you would like to have a do-over sometimes. And we wonder, did we grieve the Holy Spirit? And maybe, but God is always there to reach out. God is always there to offer us fresh forgiveness if we only humble ourselves and ask. Ephesians 1.13, we were sealed in Him, sealed in Jesus with the Holy Spirit of, prom- of promise. Those who are God's children are forever and always God's children. Do you understand that? That is so, so important, and I know there's a danger in that, but but that is so important as we wrestle within our own lives. And I know you do, as we wrestle at times with our relationship with Christ. Those who are sealed in Christ will forever remain in Christ. Well, let us move on to the final point that I have here, and it'll be a quick one. Curious arrogance. Curious arrogance, it's just... um, um, I had to put something in there because I was on this word arrogance, so I don't like to do anyways. Um, we see it here in verse 55. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and it was about over. This is the third and final Passover of Jesus, by the way. And so they were seeking Jesus. They were seeking Jesus. Now that should that, that, that's kind of an exciting thing. Um, but I like to look at the other side of things. And the more I thought about and the more I dug into they were seeking Jesus. I don't think they were seeking Jesus because they were seeking Jesus. I don't think they were seeking Jesus because they wanted to surrender their life to Jesus. I think they were drama-seeking people, right? I mean, I think they were up for a great battle. Let's see what happens. We've got the Supreme Court versus, we've got the Sanhedrin versus whatever. It could have been some of that. And though I don't want to dismiss it completely, there were some that were truly seeking Jesus, I'm sure. And those who were truly seeking Jesus found Jesus. But there were some that I think were more wait and see. Right? Let's see how this works out before I fully commit and fully, before I fully surrender. That's probably what they, many of them were saying. And that's why I call it the curious arrogance, because we're going to kind of stand back a little bit. We don't want to get involved until we see if something's going to be successful. And then if it's going to be successful, we're going to get on board. And if it's not successful, we're going to say, yeah, I never signed up for that. Right? I think that's what you had some of these here. And that's why I call them curious arrogance, because they, they, they were unwilling to commit. They were unwilling to fully surrender. And I think we have many Christians within our churches today, churches out there, not here. <laughs> you know, that's not fully committed. That's not fully surrendered. But it's just kind of playing and seeing. Let's see how things work out. Let's see how this can benefit my life, right? Let's see how God can make my life better. And we're not fully connect committed. And as soon as one little thing goes wrong, that's it, God, we're out. I think we need to be so, so careful in that, not to play the wait and see. And I think you had some of those who came for this final Passover. And it was they, they had that mindset among them. They had my mindset among them. But nonetheless, we need to bring this thing to a close here this morning. And so in closing, I do want to remind you, once again, that these self-righteous religious people were so blinded by their lust for power and control and comfort that they refused to recognize Jesus. They refused to recognize Jesus. Jesus literally was right there in front of them. Jesus literally brought back a dead man for their very eyes. 
And yet they refuse to surrender. Why? Because it costs them too much. It costs them too much. Hey, listen, in this politically charged environment, to follow Jesus, the cost is going up. My friends, the cost is going up. Get in line with the woke community or you're canceled. Hmm? That happens so much in our Christian communities. We have to be so careful. The over-religious, they're going to say, you're not religious enough. And the other side is going to say, you're too much of an originalist. You're too much of a textualist. You're too much of, uh, of taking the Bible for what it says. Come on, this is 2020. Wake up. Can't take the Bible literally. Right? We have these extremes. And as Christians... I know you feel the way that I feel at times and bounce back and forth and back and forth. Back and forth. So the question I leave you with today is the question of verse 47. Question in verse 47, and it is exactly what Caiaphas started with. What are we doing? What are you doing? But not just what are you doing. What are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? Are you ignoring him? Are you opposing him? Or have you accepted him? Lord, I pray for each one of us. Lord, each one of us finds ourselves at a different place on this continuum we call life. Father, some of us are sold out and don't even know we're sold out and some of us maybe are a bit curious. Maybe are a bit wait and see. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your patience that you've had with me over the years. And Lord, I know you have that for each one of those who are yours. I thank you for that. And so, Father, I pray for each person in this room this morning, for those who may be watching, Father, I just pray that in this season of unrest, Father, that you would bring comfort, that you would bring peace, that you would bring rest for our souls. And Father, that you would once again reassure us that we are safe in Christ alone. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.